Hey, welcome to The Screenwriting Life. I'm Meg LaFove. And I'm Lorianne McKenna. We are professional screenwriters. We've worked together as a team and separately. We've worked on studio and indie films, live action and animation, from my work on Inside Out and Captain Marvel. To my work in Pixar's story department on Up, Brave, and Inside Out. We are here to share our insights on the craft of screenwriting and also the life. How to not only survive the ups and downs, but thrive. We want to help you become the best screenwriter you can be and to reassure you that you are not alone on this journey. Hey guys, welcome back to the show. Today we're thrilled to be chatting with best-selling author, creativity thought leader, and fellow podcaster Jennifer Loudon. Jen's most recent best-selling book, Why Bother, was inspired by a creative dry spell in her own creative life that forced her to ask what she now considers one of the most important questions we can ask ourselves as writers. Why bother? Welcome, Welcome, Jen. Welcome, Jen. No, it's We're so super happy to have you here. Oh, I'm Yay. super happy to be with both of you. I just think you're amazing. Both of you are amazing. <laughs> so are you. <laughs> all right. So before so, we get into all this, because we're so excited, we are going to do, you have agreed uh, bravely to join <laughs> our adventures in screenwriting. Lauren, you go first. So uh, Jen can a little hear how we do it. How was your week? Well, so my week was fine, but I want to tell a story about my mother that seems like it's not about screenwriting, but it actually is at the end. So I can't wait. a while ago, my mom who listens to the podcast uh, told me that her favorite part of the show that I host is Jeff, the producer. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> and I was like, and I was like, cool mom. What great feedback. So then blame her. I mean, come on. I know he's great. And then I challenged her. I was like, what mom? I host the, she goes, no, he's just great. And then she went on to talk about all the ways in which he's great. And I'm like, this is, I feel so validated. Can I meet your mom? (laughs) (laughs) So then later, like a couple weeks later, she tells me that she doesn't listen to the whole podcast anymore. She only listens to the beginning when I talk so she can find out what I'm doing, what I'm up to. And then I don't know if it was the end of last week or the beginning of this week, but I was talking to her about something and she said, I can't listen to your podcast anymore because I'm a stalker. She's like, I hear you talking about things going on in your life and I really want to call you and ask you about them. But it feels weird to be like, I heard you on the podcast saying that you're having struggles with family stuff and I don't want to call you. And I then get she, that. I get yes. that. That would so be a like, dilemma. I was like, mom, listen to the show. Don't listen to the show. Like whatever. And then she said, and you never talk about me. Oh, all right. We and need to I roar said, the crowd right now. And I said, I don't talk about you because I know you were listening to the show. But now that I know you're not listening to the show, I'll talk about you. And I'm going to tell everyone how Jeff is your favorite part of the show. <laughs> and she was like, okay, I like that. So I know she's listening now because I told her I would talk about her. So hi, mom. Now, I'm Lorian's mom. <laughs> I'm Lorian's mom. <laughs> the reason why this has to do with screenwriting is that we talk a lot about not letting external voices tell us who we are and how to behave and that we have to be so careful about, you know, making sure what we want to say and how we want to say it comes from us rather than these voices and how we can internalize these voices that can turn very negative. And uh, this is an example for me of how I censored my behavior and what I talk about, because I knew that my mom was listening to the show. Right. right? right. And like, I wrote a, I wrote a pilot that she asked to read. And I was like, well, no, because there's a mom daughter relationship in it. I don't, 
I'm not comfortable talking about with you. I don't want you to read it. And she's like, oh, am I in that show? I'm like, probably. Um, so there's just, um, it's sort of this ongoing conversation with me and the rest of the world and other voices and how I am in the world. We're always sort of censoring ourselves depending on the audience in certain ways. And I think there's a healthy way to do that. But, but denying that that exists and saying, don't listen to any voice, I don't think is realistic, but figuring out how to have a healthier relationship with that. Not saying I have one, obviously not because I will, you know. Isn't it it mostly the mom in your head? And I I say this meaning my mom has passed away, but she's still in my head and I'm still unconsciously shifting things around. Both of my parents have died. I'm sure I'm still reacting to them as if they're alive because they're, they're so present. Probably who I never got the 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 gift of knowing my mother when I was an adult. So my response to my inner mom is still very 19 years old. Do you know what I mean? Like there's some part of me that has not, I've had to work really hard to grow that part up. So it's just so interesting that it's the voices in our head too that really we're actually responding to, I think, a lot of times. True. Yes. So other than that, my week was, you know, up and down, bumpy pages, no pages, regular. Not th- oh, I delivered a script. I yeah, tend, that's to, small this. Thing. That's I small tend thing. to do this where I only focus on the negative and then I forget to mention like, oh, and by the way, I delivered a script to the network. And, <laughs> and they really liked it. Well, that was the studio. The studio liked it, which is great. Now we, it's off to the network for them to read and, you know, we'll wait for next steps. So that's exciting. But woo-hoo. Lorian, yeah. when you win your Emmy, you're going to come on the show and talk all about how like you had a frustrating week and they'd be like, oh, wait, I want an Emmy though. Like- <laughs> <laughs> I really hope so. Yeah. I can't find anything to wear. Yeah, but, exactly. Oh yeah. For what? Oh, for the Emmy Awards. That's right. Exactly. That's right. <laughs> totally. Jen, how was your week? You know, I've been reflecting a lot on something, Meg, you said in my podcast about needing to serve the story. And I ask you a question that really painfully revealed probably too much about myself, which is what do you do when you don't get picked? And how do you live with the life of a screenwriter, the life of a creative of not of when someone doesn't pick you? And and you just were so startling to me and saying, well, I don't think about that way. Like the story has come to me and I have to serve it. So what do I need to learn or how do I need to speak up or how do I need to sell it differently or portray the characters differently? I've been reflecting a lot on that. And what do I want to serve next? Because unlike screenwriting, you finish a book and then you spend, I spent the last year selling that book and I'm like, okay, I've done my year. I've done what I can. It's not that we won't do things continually, but I can't have it be the focus of my life. I have to create something next. What's that going to be? I don't know. And I'm fine with that, but I want to take it from your perspective. I want to see what wants, what wants to come to me that only I can, not only I can serve, but so that's, no, but yes, only you right can now. serve. It's choosing yes. you for a reason, right. you know, maybe the broader topic can be served by multiple people, but only in your unique way, can you do it the way it wants to come out? Like it's a, it's a sacred pact. Um, you know, it's funny. This is the side note. I was watching American Idol. And um, the head of Coldplay, whose name is Chris Martin. Am I right? I don't remember. That's right. I had a crush on his voice and now I have a crush on his soul because he literally says to these young singers, well, you know, I'm just the conduit for these songs. Like these songs are choosing me and my job is to put them out. 
and and that's your job. You, this song has now chosen you. It used to be mine. Change it however you want because now it's your song. You are mm. now the conduit for it. It's the same song, but it's not because you are the conduit. And I was like, oh my God, that's it exactly. It's exactly what you're saying, right? Like you are the conduit for this and you just have to open yourself to it. I, anyway, yeah. sorry, I didn't I didn't mean to jump on that, but I was like, no, no, it's great. No, thing. I love it. And, and the, I think the question then to kind of play off, you know, how was my week is, just listening what wants to come next and also knowing with books because that's probably the form it will take but maybe not maybe not that that's a big commitment am i am i ready totally it's a big <laughs> commitment do i have right? to you have to gird your loins i might not be ready but that's okay right. too yeah because you just came off a year of selling a book you might be tired i think i am i think you're tired we all have to be doing i can't wait to talk to you about that in terms of your book and what you talk about the doing versus mm-hmm. settling. Oh my mm-hmm. God, I still want to talk about that. But we're going to quickly do my week. Um, okay, so my son is- Did you win an Emmy? And- I did not. <laughs> no, not yet. Not, not yet. Not yet. Exactly. Um, my son is starting to look at schools to apply to for film school. And he read something on a site, which I believe it was USC. I'm sorry, I can't give credit to this person because he's 17 and he didn't tell me um, who it was. So they said in terms of writing an essay, the advice was write something so vulnerable, you don't want to put your name on it to send it out. Write so vulnerable in your college essay that you don't want to give it to anybody. And I was like, this is the lava, mm-hmm. right? It's the same thing. I was just so like, that is such a great way of thinking about it. That's lava. Like it's so vulnerable that part of you is like, I cannot put my name on the script. Not because you're afraid it sucks because we all have that, but because you've so kind of given over something of yourself. Uh, into it. That's exactly right. And of course, now we're watching short films because he has to make one. And it was really interesting because I would stop them. And these were mostly student films. And I'd be like, okay, who we're literally 30 seconds in and a couple minutes in. I'm like, who's the emotional point of view of this? And he's like, nobody. And I'm like, okay, let's go to the next one. Next beginning. Who's the emotional point of view of this? Oh, it's that girl. It's very clear. All the details, all the shots are about her emotional state. And then it flips in the middle. I'm like, who's emotional view of it now? Oh my God, it just switched to the guy. So that was super fun to just do that with your own movies that you love. And then I was like, okay, let's do the beginning. And I asked him Andrew Stanton's question, which I think he said on the podcast, but I don't remember. He has said it to me many times, which is when do I fucking love this person? And you literally have a minute. You have the introduction to be, especially in a short film, but in any film, when you're like, I fucking love this person. When does that happen? And we just started to watch all these films. And literally, you can watch Spielberg's first short film. You immediately know the world. You immediately know his emotional state from the the shots he's choosing. You immediately love this kid. And you immediately love the girl he meets literally in the first five minutes of the short. So it was fun to toggle between masters and their shorts and then beginners just to look at these things. So I thought that was super informative. Um, The other thing I did was I'm writing in my passion project. You guys all know I'm sprinting in the morning from six to eight and I'm writing a period piece. And suddenly I'm like, oh, I've never done this. Can I be in a room for four pages? Because it's a period piece and they're in the study. Oh my God, I don't even know. I've never read one of these on the page. So I got Emma Thompson's Sense and Sensibility, which I thought I was so clever because I'm like, well, I'm just going to read it and look on the page. Oh my God, it was a mistake. Here's why. Because it's so good. (laughs) It's so good. 
that I was like, I can never write again. Forget about write. Look, why would I write again? Because it's so good. She has almost no description. It is all character. It is all character behavior. Unbelievable. So I was like, I'm always like telling you guys, read it on the page, read the scripts. But sometimes there's a back problem, which is a backdoor problem. So Meg, you texted me about this, yes, right? Freaking out, like, it's and too good. Uh, we we chatted about it for a while about like, well, you know, she had five years, she worked on it off and on, you know, all these reasons why it was so brilliant, but you know, it's just brilliant. It doesn't matter in there, my brain. There can be I'm going to get through reasons. it. I'm going to yeah. go do my sprints with you guys and continue to suck, but and not be Emma Thompson. But I just, but it's, but it's also why I posted in the Facebook group. What's something you've seen or read that made you mad? Right, like because it's so good. Because it's so good, it made you mad. Like it makes you realize I'll never be able to write something like this, or you know that, or that you're so inspired to write something because of how good it is. And it was really interesting seeing everyone's different, very different responses. You I know, love that. which was really okay, cool. One other quick thing before we get to Jen, because I will never remember to tell you next week. So this morning I had an interesting thing, which is I've done. You know, in your process, you're going to do. Barf draft, outline, some more barf drafting, some more outline in which we're always saying, don't worry about page count. Don't worry about page count because you're now's the time, let it all out. But now I'm in a process where I kind of have to worry about page count. Like I've done all of that and now I kind of have to look at it. And it's really interesting, especially when you're either working with a director or a writing partner. So you've got a lot of ideas in there. You know what I mean? And I, I literally was like, okay, this is, this section is way too long. I know it's too long. Let's do the ruthless cut ruthless cut and it's better sometimes so we always talk about don't worry about page count when you get to the part in the process where you have to do a ruthless cut just as a writing exercise that is a really good exercise to do because you start to see what is truly important what is not and um what it illuminated for me were sections in this section of the script that were about situation instead of story Mm -hmm. It was just, and it was repeating information about the situation we already know. It might've been funny. It might've been whatever. There might've been other reasons that it ended up in there, but it didn't earn its spot because it wasn't about character. It wasn't about plot. It wasn't illuminating thematic. It wasn't kind of setting up something for later for the character. Like she's, her behavior right now is doing this and that's gonna, I know it echo all the way to that. Like it wasn't doing any of that stuff. It was either just funny or just situation, not story. So I just, it's just, when you get to the edit part of your process, again, this is not something to do when you're barfing or doing early drafts, but when you get to the later part, it's a great thing to do to start illuminating why is this section, this scene, this part of the scene in the script? Really ask yourself those hard questions because that's part of writing. Those choices are part of writing and other people will not be as sophisticated about it in terms of, but it's so funny. And you can be like, but it's not doing anything else. So if you want to keep it, it has to do something else. It can't just be funny, right? I mean, sometimes it can, of course, if it's a funny, like super comedy. But um, anyway, so I just wanted to say that because it happened this morning and I knew I'd forget if I did not tell you. All right, so now on to the good stuff. The good stuff, Jen, 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 Jen. Um, Lauren, you go first. (laughs) Uh, So I want to ask you about the Why Bother book. Um, and how your story is such a big part of the reason you wrote it. And uh, so, can you talk about that sort of creative roller coaster of your life and how 
how it maybe almost stopped you from creating, but then it inspired you to write this book and other things? In a very specific way, I spent four years and 500 pages, go ahead and throw up a little bit in your mouth right now, working on a memoir that completely failed. It didn't work as a narrative arc. And I thought, I mean, I went to film school, people. I thought I understood narrative arc. <laughs> Out of the ashes of that book came another book that I pitched to my agent. She turned it down and the entire agency turned it down. And out of the ashes of that came this book. And what I think is really amazing about that sort of the, 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 the end of the Why Bother story, and then we can go back, is that none of those disappointments, and they were pretty darn epic, I mean, especially the four years and 500 pages, stopped me for more than a couple of hours. Instead of where I would have been in the past earlier in my creative life, I would have gone to bed for a month right? I would have eaten the entire refrigerator. I would have watched everything I could find on Netflix. And totally. I think the, dif the difference is, is that I've learned that the main reason to create and, and everybody, I make my living through creating and coaching creatives and selling books and all of that. So I'm not, no, there's no trust fund here. There's no rich husband that the main reason I do it is so I can grow. And I grew so much writing that memoir that, and I knew it, I reflected on it enough and saw it because it's such a painful personal process that I was like, I've already won. And whatever I can take out of this that I can share with others and earn a living from and build stuff on, great, I want that. But I, when I was younger, and I think this is what can cause us to go into why bother to go to your bigger question, is we're so attached to the outcome. Yes. We're so attached to look at me, like me, tell me I'm good enough. And that's who I was before. And so one of the stories in the book is I wanted more than anything to get on Oprah. And this was in the eighties um, or the, I couldn't have been in the eighties. It was in the nineties. It was in the nineties for God's sakes. I'm not that old. And she didn't have her show in the eighties like that. So in the nineties, like it was like, if you could just get on Oprah, that was it. You would be made, right? You would mm -hmm. be made and that's it. And your career is made. And I got on Oprah and Yes, it was great, but I wasn't made because what I was looking to Oprah to do was to tell me I was good enough. I was looking to be anointed, right? And we all have these stories, whether it's a particular producer or it's a particular deal or a particular director, or a particular number on the screenplay that you sell, the spec screenplay that you sell. Oh, that's it. I've arrived. And those were the stories. Love me, like me, tell me I'm good enough that kept throwing me in that cycle of why bother? And sometimes waylaying me for years. I mean, I kept working. I kept doing things. So I had to make a living. But it was draining and not often not what I really wanted to be doing. Like we were talking about earlier in the show, like what was coming to me. It was more like, well, I can do this or this is a good idea, or this is a good spinoff, or let's write this because, which is fine. I mean, I would always show up and do my best work. So I think for me, what's really been the key to that more sustainable, fulfilling creative life is, is that deeper reason of why I bother. And, and I'm not saying I don't lose track of it. I'm not saying that I'm just like, really? That's all the books I sold this month? That really sucks. <laughs> right. That stuff still matters. It, it just still matters. Throw you off your course now. Right. Maybe for- yeah, It's not you know, the rudder. 
It's not the rubber. Right. That's right. I might, you know, I might need an hour on the couch with call your agent and some popcorn and then I'm okay. <laughs> right. Yes. And you talk in your book about the six step process, you know, to turn to the bright side of why bother the healthy, why bother? Mm-hmm. Um, can you take us through those six steps? Yeah. I, I just want to quickly, Jen, too, before yeah. you even go through those six steps, I love the way you like differentiate like the negative why bother versus like the inspiring like go get them version of why oh, yeah, let's too. Do that. yeah i was gonna say that jeff you're a really good producer i heard somebody's <laughs> mom really likes you, oh, yes, you know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> she's famous now she's gonna love that god but she's never said her name karen, karen. my mom's name is karen karen, okay, karen sorry, loves go, you jeff karen loves you okay go ahead so why bother is an inevitable question. It's an inevitable question in our relationships. It's an inevitable question in our health, our creative lives, for sure. There's nothing wrong with it. But the problem is, is when we ask it rhetorically and we think we know the answer. We, we think there's no reason to bother to rewrite that screenplay and put it out again or that episode, or there's no reason to, to, to go back out in the dating world or whatever it is. We think we know it's too late. There's no point. I can't handle the disappointment anymore. That's the problem. And that's what sinks us. And sometimes, of course, you might not be able to bother about that anymore, but you're not genuinely asking. You're not genuinely asking. So you can't turn to the bright side. You can't turn to the go get side. I love that, Jeff. <laughs> Unless you actually ask, what do I care about? Yeah. I think we've all had times in our lives like that, where it's like, why bother? I'm doing this other thing, you know, um, instead of good enough. Yeah. Yeah. So the why bother on the dark side is stopping you, uh, undercutting you, making you retreat versus the bright side is more literally going more interior. Right. And really asking the question, right? Like I, I, I talked to a father once who has a special needs kids. And he's like, at first I asked, why me? Why me? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden he went, wait, why me? wait, why me? Like the, a, the whole question reversed. And it sounds like the same thing, right? Like, exactly. well, why bother? Well, wait, why should I bother? What, yeah, what why I should I bother? bother? And because one of the things that drains us, as, especially as women, is we're bothering about things that are exhausting and that aren't our business. And there's nothing we can do about them. I mean, this comes up all the time with the very connected world we live in. And we look at the suffering that we can read about just by clicking on the New York Times and then we become swamped by it. But what can you actually do about it? Have you done it? And then move on to what else you need to bother about today. So it's really quite a, an interesting practice of what's mine. What am I passionate about? And what do I care about? And, and then that leads us to the six step process. All right, here we go. <laughs> so the first one is, of course, now I'm like, what is the six step process? It's just completely <laughs> That happens at in meetings, like when the executive is saying, So, like, what are you watching on TV? And you're like, What is TV? I've never seen TV in my life. (laughs) Or what are you talking about? I just finished two books, but I can't remember the name of any other room. So the the first part of why uh, the first step of why bother is leave behind. And this is probably the one that I sucked at the most and why I stayed in my why bother times longer. Again, I'm saying why bother normal. You lose somebody you love. Your screenplay doesn't sell that you worked on. Your, you know, your job was taken from you during the pandemic that allowed you to write on the side. Of course, you're going to fall into why bother. But at some point, we have to show up and go, what am I bringing into today 
that is stopping the person I am now from moving forward, that is short-circuiting this person who's here now and saying, sorry, you don't get a life. You don't get a chance. You don't get to live because you messed up or that happened or they did the wrong thing. And that's, you know, that is the essential work. And, and again, all of this makes it sound easy and neat and like, we're going to do these steps, but it's not. I mean, leave behind is constant. I do it all the time. Leave behind that resentment, leave behind that story, you know, that whatever it is, but truly when we're in the deep, why bother? We've got to actively engage. Is it true that I'm too old? Is it true that it's too late? Is this person I am here with these desires really going to miss out on what they want because I'm bringing all that in with me? So that's truly the, I think the gateway we have to go through the doorway and it involves so much self-compassion. If there's one thing that I learned in the work that brought me to this book is that our self-cruelty will keep us stuck in the grubby side of why bother. And it's interesting in the Create Out Loud podcast, almost every guest mentions some aspect of self-compassion in their creative process. Like it's almost across the board. They may not use those words, but. So after leave behind, why am I drawing such a blank on my process? Oh my God, I need to grab my book. <laughs> I have it right here, all folded with all of my, all my notes. That's so funny. Isn't it funny when our minds do that? Yes. Okay. I I knew knew what it was. I just didn't (laughs) trust myself. Ease in is the next one, which is begin to experiment, invite yourself to not just stay on the couch because when we're again in the grubby side of why bother the draining side, we're going to get more and more just lethargic and stuck. So is it go for a wonder walk and go someplace you've always go and look for what's new. Is it pick up the, the charcoal and, and make a drawing and throw it away. So it's beginning to just ease into experimenting and beginning to trust yourself again, but no plans. No, this is what I'm going to bother about. And then the next one is settle, which you mentioned earlier, Meg. And that is, again, if there's one thing I see myself do that has kept me stuck in my bother, it's that, oh, I'm going to be quiet. I'm going to be with myself. I'm going to let myself just catch up with myself and listen. Oh, but wait a minute. I got to send that text. Oh, I didn't start. Oh, we have guests coming over. I better go get the cheese out. Oh, oh, shoot. Did I answer that email? Oh, oh, I better read the news. That news alert just came in. And so we just keep spinning and we have no relationship with ourselves or what we want or with our deeper creative work. And you, you know, and I were talking about earlier how that comes to us, whatever it comes to us, and it's a sacred pact. Well, how can we have a sacred pact if we're not present? Yeah, if you never hear it. I love in your book when you called it a nervous system hijack. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the world is built now, and it depends where you live and how you interact with the world, but the world is built to hijack you now. I mean, Netflix is built to hijack you. Facebook is built. The New York Times is built. It's because your brain says, well, what's next? Wait a minute, let me just, one, one more. <laughs> That's why I turned off all the alerts. You have to turn off the alerts. If there's one thing that will help you settle and you have to do it every time you update your operating system because then they start again. You have to turn off. Nobody gets to ping you. Nobody gets to come on your screen. Nobody gets to invade your space. One practical thing you can take away. And then settling doesn't have to look like being quiet and sitting, sitting on a meditation cushion. I, if you could all see me while I'm very kinesthetic, I'm talking with my hands, I'm moving all the time. And even though I've had a decades long meditation practice, 
that doesn't mean that's the only way to settle. It might be on a walk without, okay, I'm going to say this without a podcast in your ear, even though this is a great <laughs> podcast. Okay, no, keep going. You should have this one in your ear. <laughs> or I drive in the car, I turn everything off, mm-hmm. right? So it can be, you can be active or you can be doing other things, but you're letting your nervous system settle down. And I think you, I think this is the area of the book you talked about boundaries as pause. Mm. that you can, you know, this takes boundaries to do what you're describing. It does take a commitment to yourself and it takes self-trust. It does. It does. And a lot, and and we have to know that if it's scary, it's not scary because we've done something wrong or so many biggest, so many people's biggest fears, there's nothing in there. It's not true. You just, you just have to get through the habituation of responding and the habituation of doing everything for everybody else that they could actually be doing for themselves. It's really scaring me to hear you say all these things. <laughs> oh it's no, I am such an threatening. addict. I, I feel like I'm having this crazy <laughs> adrenaline spike of like, run away. I don't <laughs> want to do any of those things. I don't want to be quiet. I don't want to be ease in. I don't want to turn off my alerts. I mean, I have, but like <laughs> the resistance is like shouting from my face hole, my whole body. Like, I don't want to do any of those things. <laughs> you know, like it's too scary. Quiet, I think is the thing I'm the most afraid of mm, because yeah. one, yes, you're right. I'm afraid that there's nothing in there, but also I'm afraid of what's in there. I'm afraid mm-hmm. of what's in there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, the things you're talking about feel so familiar and true. Yeah. Yes. Nothing I'm not new. fighting you on what you're saying, but like terrifying yeah, because you know, it's terrifying. In your book, you have a thing about self-forgiveness exercises. Yeah, and I that, think part of this, you know, part of the reason yeah. I don't want to get quiet is a self-trust and a self-forgiveness. I just I don't know about what because I've not gotten quiet to listen. But it is <laughs> the thing that I'm like, is can you just tell us one that people could do to help them even get to the settle part? Yeah, that, one sorry. one thing you might think about doing is and there's a lot of research behind this is, is writing in the third person about something that happened. So you are not, instead of writing about yourself in the first person, and I did this and they did this writing about yourself in the third person. And just for a page telling the story as if you were telling it to somebody you loved. So you're telling the story about what happened to you that you're having a hard time forgiving yourself for, but in the third person, as if you were telling it to somebody you loved. And then if you can't do that, you can just do it in the third person. You can put it away for a while, for a few days, and then read it out loud to yourself as if you were imagining somebody you loved in front of you. And of course you could do it with a therapist or a coach or somebody you trust as well and share that. And that kind of witnessing often gets us a little bit of compassion and distance is what the research shows, yeah. That's beautiful. But I also wanna talk about this I'm afraid of what's in there that's bad, you know, or what's dark or what's angry. And the research is really clear that those feelings, if they're felt, move through pretty quickly, like 90 seconds to a few minutes. And it's actually avoiding them that makes them feel louder and louder and bigger and bigger and scarier and scarier. And I used to have a meditation teacher who would say, yeah, it's like they're all in the basement. all the voices and all the emotions and all the fears. And when you start settling down, 
they all are like, come out, I want to come out right now. And you can say to them, and this is your conscious awareness and your working memory can say one at a time, one at a time. And you got to keep the commitment to keep coming back to the basement door. <laughs> you can't just leave them down there because then they're going to get really pissed. But you keep saying one at a time, come and tell me, tell me about the story about my mom. Tell me about my anger about that producer. Tell me about, you know, tell me about it. I think for me, not to make this a therapy session, but what what the heck, I'll do the lava. Because um, what you're talking about is lava. And it's I think it's what's so beautiful is we're talking to our audience all the time about put that lava into your work, open the basement door, you know, and maybe it's so beautiful. If the lava is too overwhelming, one at a time, yeah. it's just in this scene, just in this moment. I think for me, I'm I there's something in there that I don't, there's nothing to do about it. Like, let's just be, I'll be honest in terms of, I have a special needs son. Right. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of feeling of impotency. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of feeling of, I don't know what the Mm -hmm. fuck I'm doing. There's a lot of feeling of occasionally, I wish it was different for Mm -hmm. him and me, Mm -hmm. but I can't change anything that I'm in. So why think about it? Why feel all that stuff? Right. Because if I do, maybe I'll become unable to do anything. Uh, you know, that there's this, yeah. this fear of that. Well, that but I understand that, but that can, and there's, there's some, there's some research that that's it's totally appropriate. Right. And there's also research that if we do that too much, we can fall into white bother. We can lose our ability to be present, to be joyful, to, in, to, to be vulnerable with your son, right. To really open your heart to him. And there feeling that you'll fall into that pit and you won't do anything is mostly false. I mean, I want to say mostly in case we're dealing with depression, anxiety, you know, bigger mood, yeah, yeah, yeah. bigger mood disorder issues that would then need someone to help you move through those bigger feelings. But when, for those of us who are in the normal range of crazy, (laughs) right. (laughs) The, The rest, you know, with some depression, anxiety and things that we all feel, um, then it's really, we really deaden ourselves when we can't allow those feelings to be felt over time. And again, there's days when it's like, nope, just too much today. Nope, going to choose the popcorn and call my agent and that's fine. But if I keep doing it, if I keep shoving it down, it seems pretty clear we're going to lose some of our vitality. And that's really what I think the book is about and my work is about is how can you be more vital whether it's for your screenwriting or for your writing or your painting or your love relationships or your children or whatever i mean that's what we want right we want to try to be here and, and not just appreciating and be grateful but just like be yeah yeah it's true because the more i deaden that the less desire i have right with my relationship with him and you yeah know, willingness to go out on the bike and whatever like because it's all gotten kind of solid first. Yeah, it does get solid. It does. It feels like it feels heavy and immovable. And it, what we can feel can move. And when it can move, there's more room for life. There's more room for insight. There's more room for patience, whatever it is that we need to call. Which on. is for us as writers in our, in our life, but also for our characters. All of this applies to your character. It does. All of this applies to what have they pushed? What's in their basement? What are they not getting quiet for? What is, who would be the first one knocking on the door to come up? Um, what has gotten solid that act two is going to start to break up, mm-hmm. right? Because we're getting, you know, because I love that the next step I believe is desire, mm-hmm. right? In terms of, 
you know, so many writers I know, especially emerging writers, have a real issue with giving their character's desire. It's so, so true. When I was watching these short films, I would stop it and say to my son, what does that character want? And he'd be like, nothing. And I'd be like, okay, next one. What does that character want? He's like, oh, that's super clear. He wants this. I knew it in the first three minutes. That's why I fucking love them. <laughs> like you've just started to line up. You fucking love them because they want something and they're trying. And so you're in. And I was like, oh my God, this is desire. This is what we're, you know, so I really want to talk about desire today because it's so key to so many aspects of writing for ourselves and for our characters. Yeah. I just wanted to say why it's so important for ourselves. And something we talk about too is figuring out as a person, as a creative, what you want, declaring it, saying out loud to other people and getting other people to believe in it and support you and be excited for you. That is such an important part of being a writer to be able to articulate exactly what you're trying to do rather than say, well, just this, Mm -hmm. I'll be happy if, as Mm -hmm. I want an empire. (laughs) I want, you know, a show on TV where every single person on it wins awards, you know, like And then other people can get excited about that in the same way that you want your character to get excited about that same stuff. Yes. Heck yes to all of this. I work with writers. I work mainly with nonfiction writers. And even then there, I was just giving notes to somebody before we started. And I'm like, I have no idea. Actually, I'm sorry. It was on a memoir. I have no idea what you want or your character. I call them their characters, you know, because they are who they were in the past. I'm like, no, I have no idea what your character wants. No idea. So, you know, you lived this. What did you want? (laughs) And what what got in your way? So, yeah. So desire to me, it's a scary word for a lot of people. It sounds sexual. It it could be, but most, most of the time, it's just that fire for life. And I think desire is the thing that we're all built for. And it's talking to us and it's, and it's helping us shape the lives we want and the careers we want and the voices we want, but we don't listen to it because we're afraid of it. And we don't put it in our screenplays and our books and our novels and our memoirs because we're afraid of it. We're afraid of the power of it. We're afraid of being seen wanting, especially for people who are women or who identify as women or who have in any way, not a traditional life, right? Because we have been hurt for desiring. We have, we know the history that it can be really dangerous, but without desire, we fall into why bother again. You just said it, Lorian, right? It's like, well, okay, that, that'll be good enough. Right. That'll be well, enough. And we've been, we've been hurt by it for thousands of years because it's Kill. our power. Mm-hmm. It's a it way, is. if you, if they take away your desire, they take away your power. And I love what you say in the book. You said, desire rarely accords with the sanitized, pretty version I want to hold of myself. That we can say, well, we're victims. Nobody lets me have desire. Okay, that is historically absolutely true. But now you are doing it to yourself. Mm -hmm. You have to ask why. And so much of it is that we, we hold ourselves, like I think in a different part of the book, you say in amber, like we just want it to be like, that's all right. Yeah. Our brains are not built for desire. Our brains aren't built for creativity. Our brains don't give a crap about our full life. Our brains are like, do you have enough glucose? Is it time to eat? Has there enough oxygen? Is anything going to eat you? Is anything, is anything stalking you right now? I mean, your brains are all about allostasis. Let's just keep it going. Keep it, keep you alive. Your body budget, your body budget. And then we've, so everything in us goes, no, that's okay. <laughs> Don't go there because I'm exposed. I'm exposed. And our brains often take anything that's an emotional risk, which of course is everything creative is an emotional risk as a physical risk. 
So there's a part of us that's going, uh-uh, that is, you are going to die. I mean, in some part of our brain, you are going to die. So we have to learn to work with that and be smart about it. Do you have any exercises for people who maybe are having trouble tapping into what their desires are, that it's so habituated to not know? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So one thing is just to set aside a few hours, clear beginning and clear end, so it doesn't freak you out. It can even just be a half an hour and simply do what you really want to do. And notice how hard it is for you. Notice if you go towards something, go, oh no, I can't really, have, I can't have toast. Toast is not okay, right? Or I can't, I can't watch a movie in the middle of the day, this would be me, right? <laughs> After four is okay, but not in the middle of the day. You know, what is it that you want that you're not letting, you know, oh, I really want to go across town and get that particular sandwich. Oh, come on, you're going to take all that time to go across town and get the sandwich. So that kind of little experiments, it's not tied to anything big. It's not tied to the plan for your career. It's just, what does it feel like to desire? Where do I get confused? Where do I cut myself off? Oh, I only just want to lay down and take a nap. Take a nap. What is that like when you wake up? You know, start something and then realize you don't want to do it. Stop it. Leave it undone and go do the thing you really want to do. Let yourself settle. Go back a step, two steps, whatever it is, and go, huh. I don't know. What's it like to sit here and breathe and put my hand on my heart and go, it's okay not to know. Now I'm scared again. <laughs> you can see your little eyes light up. <laughs> don't make me do that. <laughs> Just like for a minute, you're not going to die. Remind yourself you're not going to die. Or not remind yourself, but remind your brain. I'm not going to die. I'm not going to die. Yeah. I can have, I can go back to busyness. I can go back to what I know. But right now I'm just like, what's it like? Does this have does this have any validity for me? I mean, this is the thing I've said my entire self-help career. God help me. I'm self-help author. Does this resonate with you? Test it out for yourself. Make it your own. Is there something, if you're freaked, there's something there. Yeah. There's something good. there to make your own. I, I want to make sure to get in the other two steps too, <laughs> because <laughs> we can't say? leave people here. What, yeah, the the other step is um, become by doing. I'm not have a memory now. My my mind is not now working. Become by doing is beginning to experiment, but not a plan yet. With what does it mean to uh, maybe practice? For example, one of the ideas in the book is conditions of enoughness, which is an idea that I've been teaching for years. We can't experience satisfaction in our lives if we don't declare what will satisfy us. If it always lives out there in someone else's opinion and some finish line and some deal we're going to get. So conditions of enoughness are really declaring very practically in facts, not opinions or assessments, what will satisfy me. So a really good example for writers is this many pages today or this many words or this long in the room without getting the crunchy snacks and checking email. Right. And then uh, really celebrating that you did what you said you would do, because earlier in the show, Lauren, you were like, oh, yeah. And I turned a script in. I mean, that is the exact opposite of conditions of enoughness. We never we never pause to look at what we did do. And when we don't, that can cause us to fall into why bother, even when we're super taking action on the things we desire, because we're not actually noticing we're doing it. So There's not a cautionary we- tale. I want to just sum this up is that I, I will be the perfect candidate to try to follow all these steps. I will, I will figure, I will do it. I will report back, but yes, I am a cautionary tale of how, how I like what you talk about too. Cynicism. We can get to that later, but you know, that is my favorite outfit. 
Yeah, well, cynicism keeps us safe. Cynicism says, well, pff, I'm not going to try. What's the point? Yeah. So, yeah, so become by doing is, is beginning to experiment because talking about the brain again, our brain is not built to, to live its best life. It could care less. Our brain is built to keep us alive. So we have to give ourselves some proof and then we have to reflect on those experiments so that our brain can go, okay, maybe it actually is safe to claim I'm a writer. Like both of you have great stories about the transitions you've gone through in your life and to move from what you did to what you're doing now and really claim it. That's a perfect example of become by doing, right? And, and teaching your brain. Well, actually, if I say I'm a screenwriter, nobody does. My head right. did not explode. The zombie apocalypse did not happen. Nobody called me out and said, prove that you're not a writer. You exactly. Right? That, Nobody that person didn't me. show up outside of yourself. <laughs> exactly. So can we, so I don't think I understand conditions of enoughness. So this is where you say, you're not saying here's my goal in order to be, you know, make it made mm -hmm. successful, but here is something that I need to do in order to I'm not sure I understand. Sorry. Yeah. So, <laughs> so the big idea behind it is what the way that I use it are what are the things in life that I desire that aren't going to happen if I don't take action on them, but instead of desiring an outcome, impressing you, impressing that producer, getting that deal, I'm going to focus on what can I actually do that will satisfy me? And I'm going to declare that whether it's a daily basis, a weekly basis, however your mind works, I, I tend see. to be a, a day at a time kind of person. So if I, for example, let's use me. So what's, what's the sacred contract I'm going to make the sacred pact I'm going to make with my next project. So maybe my conditions of enoughness would be instead of drinking my coffee in the kitchen at the island and reading my email first thing in the morning, I go in the spare bedroom where I have this little cozy corner set up and I sit there and drink my coffee with my journal and some poetry books. And I just reflect while for the length of time. So there's always some kind of containment, how long it takes me to drink my latte in the morning. So I'm not going to be there all day because that's what your brain says, right? Oh my God, you're never going to get out of the guest bedroom in your cozy corner. You'll never talk to your clients and everything will fall down and you won't be able to pay your mortgage. And, right. Okay. Yep, my coffee's done. I'm on with my day. And oh, you got to do it every day. You got to be perfect at it. Nope. I'm committing to do it tomorrow. And I will declare when I'm done, that was enough and yay, Jen, right? I'll pause and I'll celebrate, I'll reflect that reflection thing that our brain needs. So that's I also what think, like. I also like how you put it into, you know, um, it's enough, I'm gonna write. Like today I got up to sprint, I was late because I slept in and I'm like, oh my God, I only have an hour. And I was like, I, and then I was like, you know what? I gotta go take my kid to school. And I just, on the sprint, I was like, you know what? 40 minutes is 40 minutes more than I was gonna do. That's right? exactly so, right. Like that, that has to be enough, whatever. Fits I think your sometimes life. Sometimes people are like, oh, my job is so busy. And I'm like, yeah, I know, right? But 10 minutes could be enough. Like, you don't, what is enough to say you achieved it? Right. And you can what decide is enough that, and what like fits that. in your life, because a big message in my work is you're actually a human. You're not an algorithm. You're not AI. You're not a 20 year old boy, unless you're listening and you're a 20 year old boy, which fantastic. But I'm not. And so what actual time and energy do I have today and how much do we just deplete ourselves and fall into why bother? Because we have those 
impossible ideals for ourselves. Two hours every day, no matter what, or I suck. I mean, come on, how does that feel? Is that motivating? But 40 minutes, okay, 20 minutes. Okay, great, I was for 20 minutes, I was totally present, I sprinted, yay. And then we actually stop and we don't continue the story. I mean, it may be there, but we take our attention, attention away from it. We don't continue the story. Well, it would have been better if I did my two hours. We go, I did my 20 minutes. So for me, I had, uh, I'm a runner. I became a runner late in life. I came, became a runner almost at 54. And I, when I was a kid, I had a skiing accident and I had surgery and there was a piece of metal in my knee and it's been working its way out as I became a runner without me knowing. And come December, I'm like, something's really the matter. So we finally found out come whatever March that there's a big piece of metal sticking out of my knee and into my IT band and I got it out. But that meant I couldn't run for a while and then I had to come back from that and everything else. And so my story, if it becomes, I'm not running at the same rate and the same amount and the same intensity, I suck. And then I don't want to run at all. But if it becomes, look, I'm on my feet. Same thing as running. I mean, writing, right? I'm on my feet. I was on my feet for a half an hour. Yay. Then I want to keep showing up. I want to keep bothering. It's like, it's, it's so like hard to parenting get into yourself. It. Sorry, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead, Lauren. I just, it just sounds like good parenting yourself. I'm it is good I'm parenting. Just, and it's, it's but parenting. it's also giving your brain a there there because the, what our brains don't like is that constantly receding into the future when I finally arrive and I'll be enough. So in your case of a sprint, it's like, okay, well, if I can write two hours perfectly every day with no interruptions until I finish this, then I'm enough. That is deeply demotivating. If the, if the network loves the script, then I'm enough. Deeply demotivating. And does this wrap into, because I, I know uh, we have a heart out today and I just want to, that why it needed to be chosen, right? I think yeah. it all, it, I think it's right in there too. Like, well, if I'm chosen, that's enough. Exactly. Right, right. It, and, and it's just, it's the Oprah story, right? If Oprah loves me, if Oprah had said, you're the best writer, you've written the best self-help books that have ever been constructed now or forever in the future. And you are amazing. And I want you to be my personal guru. Would that have been enough? I remember when my first agent said to me, so I want to know what's going to be enough for you. Is it the New York times? Is it how many weeks on the New York times? Like, right. We all have these stories. Um, there's a great old story in one of Sue Bender's early books. I think it was an everyday sacred. She, she went and spent time with uh, the um, Amish and wrote about it in the eighties and nineties. And she, not an author, not even thinking about it. She was a ceramics person, wrote these books sort of just by, you know, mistake. And she's in the greengrocer and her neighbor says, hi. And she's like, oh my God, you'll never believe, you know, what happened? My book's a bestseller. And the neighbor looked at her and went, what number? Oh, oh my gosh. It's like the critic manifested outside of yourself. <laughs> but, but, but it's that thing. It's like, how are you ever going to be enough if that's your standard out there? You know, I'm it sure is in you, Hollywood the same thing. You can be nominated, blah blah blah. But yes. there comes a point where they're like, "What are you doing now? Exactly. What, what have you done since then? Like, yeah. it is. You can't let that be your value. No, because that's a business churning things through and exactly. doing widgets. But we're not widgets, right? We're not widgets. So if we are waiting to be chosen in that way, it it we won't create. We won't put our work out there. I mean, I have been there so many times. And and for me, choosing myself became about developing a business where I could create 
income and have a direct relationship with clients and students and customers. So that if I do get chosen by Oprah or I do get chosen by a speaking agency or I do get on a, a bestseller list, it's gravy. It's like a night, I got an award for the book a couple of weeks ago and I was like, oh, that's nice. Yay, congratulations. Yeah. And by the way, you're ready when that stuff comes because exactly. you've got all of that underneath you. And right. then the last, the very last one is um, Be Seen, right? Is that right? Yeah, it is. It's Be Seen. And I think that's the one that is the hardest for a lot of people. I say like, this is my particular area of, yeah. Do you like to be seen or not? No. <laughs> my safety, my when I was a kid, it was the safest thing was to be invisible. I remember that story, That's right? The safest thing, yeah. yeah. So to me, be seen doesn't have to be on social media. It doesn't have to be public. It may need to be for your particular ambitions, but it really means first and foremost, seeing yourself. I see, back to the desire question. I see that you want this. I see that you want every, I, all the awards. And I see that you want those characters to be amazing. And I see that you want the best actors and that. I see that you want that. It may never happen, but I see that you want that. And then it's sharing it with someone or someone's, and you two do this with each other so beautifully that you trust. You know, it's being seen by someone or someone's who you trust. And then from there, it's building the chops to be able to be seen on the larger stage, if that's part of what, of what you, you know, might be involved in your career and developing the ability to not be destroyed when someone leaves a one word review on your book, a doll, <laughs> right? And you can just laugh at it. You're like, really? Did that make you feel good <laughs> to come on Amazon and give me a one word review dull? I mean, it can, I can laugh at it now, although I just wish it would go away so I didn't have to see it. <laughs> you elicited such a strong response. There you go. Very positive. I was say. On and left a review. Like I've never left an Amazon review unless like it was something I really, really cared about. So someone cared so much. <laughs> so you, it wasn't the response you want, but you still did. You moved them. You moved them. So congratulations. Oh gosh. And that's a good one too. A one word. Yeah. And you know, having read the book, I can say it's the opposite of dull. Yeah. yeah. It is the opposite of dull. So Thank that's you. somebody who's like, I'm not listening. La 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 la. <laughs> okay. So Jen, while we have you, you talk so much about, you know, self-forgiveness and self-compassion and how, you know, that's not just woo-woo language that like self-help people use. It's really important tools that we actually need to create productively. And um, that's been a huge change for me. I feel like I used to have kind of like this skeptical sort of, you know, squint my eyes view about self-help as like a space when actually it's a really important part of being our best creatives. And I feel like because we have you, that whole theme ties really closely into a question we got on the Facebook group that comes from Katie, who said, I haven't written in weeks. My job that pays the mortgage is in high demand right now. I'm so frustrated because I have nothing left for creativity. Who has a cure for this? And happy Friday. And Jen, I just felt like you would be able, specifically you would be able to address that question so well. Oh, thank you, Jeff. I think you should be skeptical of the self-help space, by the way. There's a lot of stupid stuff in it. But self-compassion has Fair a enough. ton of science behind it. In fact, the science is 100% clear and all in agreement, which is that self-compassion works better to motivate you than anything else. And whipping ourselves, beating ourselves up, uh, constantly comparing ourselves to who we think we should be or who we were yesterday 
is extremely demotivating. So what I hear in this question that I want to gently point out, because it reminds me of my younger self when I graduated from film school and was trying to be a screenwriter, and I was working at CAA as a reader. So I thought if I wasn't reading and reviewing books, I should be writing. There was no time for fun. There was no time for anything but push, push, push. And I got into one of the worst depressions of my life. So we have to be aware that life has its boundaries. It has its time. There's things called jobs and money and children and people dying. And those are reality. And I think so much of the world of creativity is set up as if you don't create every day, if you don't write every day, you know, Stephen King, I love you, but that was really bad advice. A thousand words every day, no matter what. That works for him. And right now for you, it doesn't work. So are there ways that you can touch your story world when you're on the commute, if you're commuting now, again, during this weird in-between time, is there a way for you to turn everything off and be with that story? Imagine yourself there. Is there a way to be reading a craft book and making notes that are going to help you? Are there little ways to keep that creativity and that relationship alive? Can you hear my dog? Yes. Is it yeah. Lot? Just don't give up on that identity. You know, don't yeah. give up on that, that conduit. But you had um, good, uh, solid suggestions, which is good, like reading a craft book or yeah. making a note. I think, or getting to you know what, doing the same thing you did with your son on movies, mm-hmm. making and just notes. so that your. I love the idea of your identity stays the same, right? Mm-hmm. Like I did that. I went into a job at an agency, and but it got so my identity became what the agency wanted me to be, which is there till whenever, like ten o'clock at night, last person in, first person out. What are you wearing? What's your hair like? you know, you know, are you on the ladder? These people are getting the jobs before you. And suddenly all of your, what you want and who you are is starting to shift over to that um, versus, wait a minute, (laughs) this is a job that I'm doing in order to do this. And again, you may not be able to write right now because the job is getting so big, but like, where is the value system and what do you want? Is it the job or is it the thing the job was enabling you to get to or do. Do you know what I'm saying? Like I got oh, it yeah, all backwards. Brilliant. It all shifted out and it took a big wake up call to be like, wait a minute, you know, literally years and years and years later, because my identity so became about that uh, flow and what their priorities were. And again, that's nothing evil about it. Nobody like was like Machiavellian, like, ha ha ha, we've got her. <laughs> no, it's like, if you're, especially you're going to work at an agency as an assistant, you have to have super strong boundaries too, right? Like of, of what your identity is and that you keep in your mind why you're doing this. Uh, I think that's also super important. Yeah. And sometimes the, like I, that happened to me at Pixar. I'm so proud of the work I did at Pixar and of, but it became my identity rather than like, people would say, what do you do? I would say, I work at Pixar. It wasn't about, you know, I wasn't, I forgot I was a writer. That's why Meg, when you said, who are you? What do you do? I said, I used to be a writer because I'd forgotten because the work I was doing was so satisfying and I was so driven to to be better at it and to learn and grow but it took the place of my voice so much um which is you know why I I moved on so that I could tell my stories and learn and grow in another terrifying direction but but it did it became so much my identity and it was much easier than remembering and doing the work and yours Jen it's such a beautiful advice that that identity, all it needs is little bits, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you're in a particularly hard time or 
job crunch time, that's okay, that happens, right? Uh, but just if you keep that little bit of identity going so that when the ebb flows the other direction, you're you're there, you've still been thinking about it, reading a book about it, whatever, you know, I think that's awesome. Yeah, it's always so inspiring to hear stories of people who are working full-time jobs and still managing to stay in touch with their growth and learning and craft at, in some other capacity, right? Because I, I wasn't able to figure that out. So it's like, how do people do that practically speaking, right? Is it take a class? Is it read books? Is it join groups? What can you do when you have a full-time job that's not in the industry to stay well, and Especially when, you know, because writing is confrontational and in, inside of yourself. So it's like, you have to really, like we talked about today, know yourself so that when the question comes up, are you going to that party tonight or are you going to write? Going to the party could be great because you need to rest. You need to connect with people. It's exactly what you need to do. Or it's total avoidance because the writing is getting hard. You're right up against the lava. Hey, I'd rather go to the party. Like it's so, there's no one answer, right? It's so, where are you right now? Know yourself um, and what this is really about, right? There's no one answer and we want one answers. And that's why we oh, look we to sure people do. like Stephen King or this show or my show or any, like, just tell me what to do. But it's that relationship with ourselves. It's being able to be in that, settle down and listen. And and an experiment and know that we're also changing and growing, right? When, when I've gone through really hard times in my life, there wasn't anything there that was gonna be for creativity, but it's so much more restful if we can mindfully put it aside and say, okay, yeah, for this, you know, my first husband had cancer at the same time my dad was dying of pancreatic cancer. That's not a creative time. So what if I beat myself up during that time? I guess I didn't have anything due. I don't remember what was going on creatively or professionally during that time, but there's just times like that. And they, and they may be the work time, but what you said, Meg, is so important because we have to keep that desire alive and we have to keep our relationship with it and seeing ourselves through those eyes in Maybe it's a conversation with a friend. Just remind me, remind me that I'm going to do this. Remind oh, yeah. Me that this I think that's super important. Laurie and I use each other for that all the time. Yeah. Like I'll be texting her and I'll be like, okay, I'm hating this. Blah, blah, blah. But she'll be like, remember you said. <laughs> right, 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 right. Shut up. All right. <laughs> and if you know what, if you don't have that friend in your life to our listener, our Facebook page is super supportive. There's people who will help you. I, I love on the sprints. People say, okay, what I want to get done is this. And then they're like, I didn't get it done. Everybody's like, but you did it. So like, it's very like witnessing, like you talked about. And it's very, it's about witnessing. It's about supporting no matter what you you showed up. Congratulations. And I, I think that stuff doing it can change your brain. Like it can it change does. your relationship to yourself in a chemical way. It takes time, right? It, it takes, you got to do it. You can't think about it. You got to do it. Um, but it's you got to do it. And then you got to reflect on it. Yes, the reflect on it. That was super so important great. to bring it into your uh, parts of your brain that are like, okay, yeah, you really did that. Okay. And nobody died. <laughs> Which is also why a great, like either on the sprints or a friend saying when Lorian, like I say to Lorian, and you also uh, turned in a script today, this week, right? Like to have the, you can have a person reflect back to you. But remember, you also did this. And, um, and by the way, that's many, many end of act twos in features. There's a main character who's down in the why bother. And there's another character next to them saying, yeah, but you know, you say that you, you started this journey by saying that the ocean's dangerous and you can't handle it. And yet you met sharks and you did this and you did that. And like that character, that voice of look at all you accomplished, change your brain 
is actually the end of act two. Okay, sorry, I just saw a correlation. No, there, no, so. no. It helps. into screenwriting for a moment. It does, but when you think about your craft, I mean, that's the amazing thing about telling stories is you actually, it's the best kind of self-help because that's exactly how our brains work. We're narrative creatures, so yeah. yeah. It, I will say though, it is so much easier to uh, negate any kind of progress or sit around in the negative, which is why the Facebook group for me is uh, such a great refuge. Like I can go there and be like, it's, this is a positive, supportive environment. So I'm allowed to be positive and supportive, right? Rather than there are places where it just feels like if you act that way, which, you know, I'm not, I'm a like a cynical, you know, I like the darker, the darker way of view of life um, because it's easy and I can make it funny, right? But uh, it's a, it's sort of a delight to be able to have this little spot, which happens to be on social media, which is crazy, that feels safe to reach out a hand and say, I need some help. I need some support or to be that hand that grabs out the person on the other side, that metaphor, it's terrible, but you guys get what I'm saying is that finding those spots of supportive, finding those supportive places is so vital. And I think it goes back to what you said at the beginning, Jen, about um, survival that some, and cause I'm, I also have that very strong, anxious, negative brain very. And I always think of it as trying to protect me. Because, you know, if I try to think of it as cutting it out, it's never going anywhere, right? Because something happened in my childhood that my brain thought to survive this, you can't hope, you can't desire, and be, it's like a hypervigilance, right? Turned on, right? To the negative. And it was trying to keep me alive. Like, it, it, it's not evil. It's not, it's trying to keep me alive, but now it's habituated. Right. And it's I feel like the Facebook group, a friend, the writing process, the all that stuff, getting enough, all these beautiful steps is rewiring your brain to say that is not the only way. And I love what you said. Like, is that true? Like just getting enough consciousness to catch the story going by um, is is you're halfway there, even more than halfway there. So so much of and then you can put that into your writing. And I love this stuff because it is what act two is in your script. Act two is your main character coming to these things. Is it true what I told myself in act one? It, what we're talking about today on the show is a lot of what your character will go through in act two. Do I really want this, right? Do, who, who am I, right? All of that stuff, you could take all of these steps and run your character through it. And just yeah. see what happens as a writing exercise. That's right? exactly right. What do I really want? And then what's the misbelief that's getting in my way over and over again? I mean, there's right? the out, outer events, but we really watch the movie and read the books for the inner events. Exactly. I love this stuff. Anyways, so again, thank you so much you. for being here. Well, this has been amazing. Yeah, um, great. I, honestly, you. we could do three more shows and still just scratch the surface of your incredible book. Um, you know, so please, you know, also to our listeners, check out Jen's podcast. Um, we did, we did a, a, a stint with her there. And I can, I can hop in here. I actually, <laughs> I'll go ahead. If there's anyone to endorse the show, I'm not only a huge fan, but I also do produce Jen's podcast, but I can say without pause that every single person listening to the screenwriting life right now will love Jen's show. 
Uh, we bring on creatives who talk about the nitty gritty and the challenges. And I think in the same way that the screenwriting life can support you emotionally and give you practical takeaways, we're doing that over at Create Out Loud too. So the name I threw out there was Anne Laura LeCumpf. I think first go listen to Megan Lorian's episode. Oh, it's then, so good. It is so good. And you'll get to see a different side of Megan Lorian that you didn't know. So start with that, but then check out Anne Laura LeCumpf who talks about time anxiety and toxic originality. I'll just give the quick pitch. Time anxiety is that voice that tells you you don't have enough time right now to write and you don't have enough time in your life to write and why both of those are myths. I feel like that episode for me blew my mind. And then toxic originality is this thing where you say, it's not original, so I shouldn't explore it. It's not like, I'm not totally original, so why should I write? And she debunks both of those like so well so in that episode. Good. That's I know. so good. Can't wait yeah. to listen. So check, check those out and... Um, you know, Jen's the best. So check it out. Thanks for tuning in. And if you haven't yet, join our Facebook group. And um, thank you to Jeff, our producer, and to Jess, our intern, for everything they do to produce the show and support us. Yes, thank you guys so much. And, you know, drop us a review on Apple Podcasts. Maybe not the one word dull review. We'll stick a skip <laughs> that one. Uh, but, uh, you know, please let, uh, drop us a review so we can keep doing this. And remember, you are not alone and keep writing another amazing week here on tsl i feel like we just keep outdoing ourselves um, obviously i have a bit of a bias because i produce jen's other show but i will tell you her podcast create out loud blows my mind every week i always leave with amazing takeaways and i've actually linked meg and lorian's episode in the description below uh, it's a really fun chance for you to hear kind of jen as an interviewer and get to see a different side of meg and lorian um, meg told this amazing story about jj abrams that i had never heard that will blow your mind and i also linked the Anne laura lecomp episode that talked all about toxic originality which i feel like can be a huge barrier to us as writers so i urge you to check it out i promise you'll love the show and um candidly you're doing me a solid too if you check it out all right, and now it's time to read your reviews. As always, guys, these five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts mean so much, and they really help keep the show going. So thank you for sending them. We're slowly catching up as we read them, and you will hear your review on air if you send it in. So let's start with Liza Zapol, who says, This is the podcast I've been looking for. My dream podcast. Brilliant, confident, and self-effacing women who talk about the screenwriting nuts and bolts and the rocky road of being a writer. They don't get lost in the weeds or in their own taste and opinions. Thank you. Um, that's great. Yeah, we try to do everything we can to give you nuts and bolts, but also talk about the journey. So we thank you for seeing us. All right, now McFife, who says, flawless, if there is such a thing. Discovering this podcast has been like stepping into spring after a long, cold winter. Ooh, nice metaphor or simile, I guess. <laughs> the honesty, openness and skill that both presenters bring to the table is genuine and impactful. Thanks for helping us writers find our way in this crazy, awesome industry. I am hooked. Well, McFife, we're so glad and we're happy to be your spring when things feel especially cold. And finally, WBATH says, worth every minute. I just finished binging the entire run. The show is so refreshing. Too often screenwriting anything, you know, books, classes, podcasts, have this effect of making you feel like you'll never achieve guru status. Whereas this podcast gives you an honest look at the profession and plenty of helpful writing advice without a touch of condescension. Lori and Meg and Jeff are awesome, but I have a feeling they're complete and total hypocrites. They always talk about taking notes well, but I bet there's no way they will take my note of moving the show to its more natural twice daily, seven days per week format. Regardless, keep up the good work, y'all. Yeah, I hate to say it, WBATH, but that might be a bit ambitious for us. <laughs> Either way, beautifully written review. Thank you for the very kind words. Um, what you're saying about a, you know, a podcast free of condescension is exactly what we're going for. So 
Thank you and keep tuning in. Uh, finally, the last thing I'll say is I know some of you guys were curious about my meeting. Uh, I'll say it went well, and there's going to be a part two that I'll go into more depth on next week, so I promise I'll get to it. Thank you so much for all the support. Um, Meg, Lorian, and I feel just as inspired and moved by the Facebook community as all of you. Um, and I guess the extension of that is if you haven't joined the Facebook community, you definitely should. Um, it's amazing over there. So find the Facebook group, not the Facebook page, answer the entry questions, and get the help you need. Uh, and I guess that's the end of our show. So until next time, keep writing. <laughs>